And I'm going to be pinching a verse from last week or the week before and one from next week as well because it helps to kind of uh, fit the whole thing together. So we'll start at verse 9 of, uh, of Titus 1. Uh, this is about uh, the elders who will be... Um, um, that will be taking up these roles in, in Crete. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You, however what is appropriate to sound. Amen. May God's word. The importance of leadership is emphasized in this letter here to Titus. And so the question is, people turn to Christ. Is there some sort of pattern that you're meant Well, we know that That was exactly the situation that Titus found himself in. He's been left behind on the island of Crete. Uh, He's been part of Paul's missionary team. Paul has now moved on to a new area of work. And here is Titus, and he's been left behind. In all the towns that they visited, great, many people turned to the Lord. What happens next with these young believers? What will help them? Well, the first thing that he actually mentions here in chapter 1, is the appointment of, of elders, of, of leaders in the church. These are men who have to be correctly qualified. It's interesting that the qualifications that are here are not so much qualifications of, of natural ability. <clears throat> uh, they're, they're really character things, spiritual qualities that these people have. So it's not necessarily the best academically trained. It's not necessarily the people who are most prestigious in the local town or village or in the society that people would naturally look up to. It's people who have got spiritual character qualifications who are put in these positions. Now, why are they put in these positions? Why is it important for there to be elders in these churches? So the reason for it, of course, is to protect the people. Now, the bulk of the passage that we read talks about difficulties, talks about the fact that there are various groups of people who are going to upset the young Christians, they're going to be disruptive, they're going to introduce different ideas, 
They're going to be saying things that are going to be confusing. And so, as I read, the last thing that was put down as one of the qualifying markers of people who would hold these positions was that, verse 9, that they have to be able to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, the message of the gospel. So that on the one hand, he can encourage others by sound doctrine, and on the other hand, he will be able to refute those who oppose it. So these are the reasons. And there are other reasons given as well. So, for instance, if you went down chapter 2, you'll notice that there's a whole lot of different groups of people who are identified. You'll find that there are, you know, there are older men, there are older women, there are young men, there are, uh, there are slaves. And he talks about all the characteristics of the demographic, of the people who have come to faith in Christ, and, and they all have needs, and they all have particular issues that need to be addressed and need to be helped. And Titus, in a sense is acting as a bit of a model to these people who are now going to be the qualified leaders in the church. And these are some of the other things that they're going to be involved in. So just a couple of things um, before we get into the detail uh, of, of this particular section, which is how can they protect the little flocks, if you like, uh, that are there in these different villages on the island of Crete. Um, there, there is going to be more than one elder per church. You know, there are going to be a number of elders, appoint elders, verse 5, in every town. It's not just going to be one leader, there's going to be several of them. And we, we see the wisdom of this in many passages of Scripture. Um, there's a particularly helpful passage, actually, in the Old Testament to do with Moses uh, from this point of view. Moses gets a visit from his father-in-law one day, a man called Jethro. Uh, and Jethro pitches up, and he's very interested to see all the things that uh, Moses is involved in. Uh, so he goes out and he observes uh, what Moses does every day, and uh, he can't believe his eyes, because uh, Moses stands there from dawn till dusk, and he listens to all the difficult cases and he listens to all the concerns and the issues that are brought before him. And he, he deals with them or attempts to deal with them on his own. And Jethro scratches his head and at the end of the day he says to Moses, I don't think this is going to be good either for you, Moses, you'll wear yourself out, or for the people. Because you'll wear them down as well if you're the only person they have to go to. And so he gave him his advice that what would be beneficial here would be for him to, to get a number of people that he could share the load with. And so we see the wisdom of the, the, the multiplicity of, of people that are bearing the burden together, if you like, of, of leadership uh, in the church. Now, the word that's used here uh, in this particular chapter about leadership, from verse 1, verse 5, is, is elders. But in fact, there are a number of other terms that are also used in our New Testament as well. So if you, for instance, were to turn to 1 Timothy 3, uh, you would get the word overseer. In fact, it says the person who, who wants to be an overseer, they desire, they aspire to a noble task. It's the same idea. They're the same group of people. They're not different people. It's just an alternative word that is used. And the idea of overseer 
carries with it the sense of responsibility, whereas the idea behind the word elder is spiritual maturity. And then, of course, from the First Peter 5 reading that we had earlier on, you have the word shepherd, which, of course, is where the word pastor comes from. People who would shepherd and care and nurture and feed and protect the people of God. So these are all different words that describe different emphasis of the same, of the same people. Uh, biblical eldership, of course, is, is different than leadership in our world in general. Leadership in the church is not to be a kind of domineering, power, hierarchical type of thing. You know, we're not to lord it over the people of God. But instead, as shepherds, you are among the people of God and, and you're caring for them. It's not about power. It's not about position. It's not about prestige. I mean, one of the big examples about this actually is found in Third John. And that's the third letter of John. There's a man introduced there whose name is called Diotrephes. And it says about Diotrephes, he, he loved to be preeminent. He, he loved to, to have position. He loved to be first in the church, the first place. And, and because of that, he abused that role. And, uh, and John, who's writing, has to kind of point out that this is not at all helpful. And in in fact, what we need to take as our example, of course, is the example of the Lord Jesus and his leadership as the, as the great shepherd, you know, who, who, who took the basin and who washed his disciples' feet and was like a servant among them. It's that kind of leadership that is being talked about when we think about leadership uh, in the church. So although I've said that, by and large, it's, it's about spiritual quality rather than natural ability, there, there is some ability that is required. And that, that's us back at verse 9. This ability to teach. Uh, and an ability that in the teaching can both encourage on the one hand and refute in another. Now this is the kind of bridge verse, if you like, that takes us from, you know, that earlier part of the chapter into where we are uh, just now because what they're doing is by their teaching and their ability to do that they are protecting the people of God so I mean why, why is it that protection is, is required well verse 10 there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception especially those of the circumcision group. Now this is everywhere, everywhere you went. In fact, virtually every letter in our New Testament was written because there was some sort of problem and people needed to be guarded and protected by it. You know, the, the reading earlier from Acts 20 was, was one of them. Paul says to the elders from the church in Ephesus, you know, after I leave, there are going to be ferocious wolves and, and, and they're actually going to arise from among yourselves. They're just going to rip apart the people of God. And you need to be on your guard for yourself and also for the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You know, you, you need to watch it because it's as, it's as serious as that. And so this is the same kind of thing that he's talking about. Prime function of leadership within the church 
is the protection of, of the people of God. And in particular, what's mentioned here is verse 10, the circumcision group. So just to give you a bit of background, of course, uh, to that. This is exactly the same kind of thing that Paul addresses in his letter to the Galatians. The whole of the book of Galatians basically has to do with this. Really what it means. A lot of the early believers were Jewish in background. And the Old Testament scripture was so important to them. And they found it difficult to go over a lot of that. And uh, they put a, a kind of misemphasis on a lot of it. And basically what they were saying is, yes, we accept the teaching of Christ, but unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you actually can't be saved at all. And they carried a lot of this. And it was such a fundamental point that they were making. And, and really, they failed to grasp that that was driving at the very heart of what the gospel was. You know, that the gospel is not about ceremony, and it's not about the law. It's, it's all about God's grace. And we are justified not by works, but we are justified by faith in Christ. And, you know, Paul goes to enormous lengths to explain this and to take this on in the letter to the Galatians. And it's happening here as well. And he said, you know, we've got to be able to protect our people from this. Because if this gets a grip, you know, everything's going to be swept away. And it was a very, uh, a very powerful argument. And people were intimidated by it. If you remember the book of Galatians, it, it's so intimidating that even people like Barnabas and Paul are carry, uh, and Peter are carried away with it. It was such a, a persuasive argument. Um, and so they're, they're, they're told that they need to deal with it. Now, that was the issue. A little bit of insight is given to the motivation of these people um, because it says down at the end of verse 11 that they were in it for the money. You know, it was dishonest gain that lay behind it. You know, they were peddling this, their teaching, to get something out of it. So their dishonesty uh, is, is kind of laid bare and many of these people um, are not Christians at all. You know, despite having an appearance uh, of knowing God, um, they are not believers. You know, if you go down to verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. And so again, that's a very serious point, that it is possible for people to have this whole veneer of Christianity. It's possible for people today to be in that kind of situation, to know the talk and to know how to present themselves. And yet, really underneath all of that kind of appearance, they don't know God at all. And so it's important for the clear teaching of the Word of God to come from leadership in the church to make these particular points. Of course, some of them may well be believers, but are misguided. So, for instance, you've got verse 13, where he says, Rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and pay no attention to Jewish myths. And so he's looking, perhaps for some, to become sound. There are others who he says, you know, they're, they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything that's good at all. Now, one of, one of the main points, as far as this group was concerned, has to do 
with, with their understanding of purity. Now, I think that's where verse 15 comes in, you see. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are, are corrupted. This comes out of the, the Jewish myths or the merely human commands. Now, basically it's the same point that Jesus met with. You know, when the, the, they were criticizing his followers for, 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 for eating and drinking with hands that weren't washed. And the whole point about that was becoming ceremonially unclean. If you touched something that was unclean, that had been touched by a Gentile or by a sinner, then that made you unclean as well. And this was the kind of thing that they were teaching about being ceremonially unclean, and therefore they had to change the way that they lived their life, they had to isolate themselves and all the rest of it. And Jesus, of course, taught that it's not that that makes you unclean. It's not that what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean because you've touched something. What makes you unclean is what comes out of your heart. You know, it's all the sin and the wickedness and the lust and the corruption that is resident in the human heart. It's a fundamentally, completely different understanding of what purity and, and what contamination is. They, they had the complete polar opposite of what the biblical teaching was. And he says, we have to understand this key point about actually what purity and impurity is. So, an elder has to be strong on all of this. They have to be able to stand up against this type of thing. You know, it's a bit like Joshua as, a, as the leader that took over from Moses. No doubt feeling pretty intimidated. How could he fill those shoes? And yet, the Lord says to him, you know, be strong and, and be courageous. And, and to borrow Paul's phrase, you know, we, we need to fight the good fight. And, and we need to be good soldiers uh, of Jesus Christ. And we can't just be content with, a, with an easy life and an armchair observer's life of the, of, of, of the gospel. We need to take the fight on for ourselves and not leave it for others. And, and that's not often an easy thing to do. And sometimes, if you put your head up over the parapet, you are shot at, and it can sometimes take its toll. A friend of mine, in fact it was John, who was here last Sunday, uh, was telling me about somebody, and he said about him, you know, he has the respect of the people in the church. And the reason that he has the respect of, of people in the church over the years is that he carries a lot of scars, you know? Scars from the various things that he's stood up for and he's tried to help with and he's taken the blows uh, and he's lived to tell the tale but, but he carries the scars. You know, and you know, we have to be at times strong and, and courageous and sometimes it, it might appear to be rather contentious. I mean, how, how, how stronger can you get as far as language is concerned by, uh, by Paul's use of the, the quotation in verse 12 there of uh, one of their own poets. You know, he quotes their poets and he says about them, 
You know, this is what the national people are like. They're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gottons. And this saying is true. And you need to rebuke them. And sometimes these things have to be done. And it's not always something that is easy to do. But of course Jesus did that as well. I mean, you just have to read some of the passages when he takes on the Pharisees. And how he addresses the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And how they distorted the word of God. You know, brood of vipers and you know, whitewashed sepulchres and all the rest of it. And he, of course, bore the brunt of their hostility uh, because of that. And we can see examples of that all throughout church history. And even in our own day. You know, you just have to go down the road where Ian used to come from in, in Gilcomston. Having to come out of, of a kind of situation where the gospel was was being diluted and, and people had to take a stand against that kind of thing. And, it, and, and sometimes people suffer because of that. And so, so sometimes that has to be done. And, and that's the kind of thing that he's talking about here, protecting the people of God. But I think there should be a, a word of, of caution in, in and among all of these kind of things. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's always helpful to be in, maybe we should call it protection mode, uh, absolutely every second of the day as far as church leadership is, is, is concerned. Because I think if, if you carry that with you all the time, there is a real temptation that you can become harsh and that you can become suspicious and that you can become critical at, at every single turn. Now that's not to say that problems don't exist, but you know they, they may not necessarily be around every corner, you know. And therefore, you are not to be overly critical. I remember uh, reading an account in uh, Martin Lloyd Jones's biography about a visit that um, he he made to Canada. And uh, he, was, uh, he, he met with a guy who's a well-known preacher there and who edited a well-known Christian magazine and whose ministry had taken on this kind of hypercritical kind of tone. And uh, Lloyd-Jones was trying to kind of uh, make this point to him. You know, you can't, just can't be slamming people all the time. You just can't be negative all the time. Um, the man didn't listen to him and, of course, uh, the publication just dwindled away to nothing at the end of the day. Um, sometimes we need to, to learn that, that being negative is not always helpful. I mean, what, what he's told to do here, and you probably noticed that this uh, word came up three times in the reading, sound doctrine. See that? It's in verse number 9, it's in verse number 13, and it's in chapter 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, positive. Now, the, the word sound carries with it the idea of, of being healthy, uh, health-giving, of being, of being wholesome. You know, to give the positive, wholesome, healthy teaching of the Word of God in contrast to what is toxic and diseased or poisonous teaching that comes from the circumcision group. And that is needed to, to balance things up. And there is another side to leadership, again, which should be commented on. And it is the fact that there should be gentleness. Although there has to be firmness, 
There should be gentleness and there should be a Christ-like spirit. So if you turn back, for instance, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and down at verse 24, it says there, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And so there has to be a gentleness that is also alongside the firmness that we have in standing up uh, to er error. And certainly at a personal level, people shouldn't be prickly and people shouldn't be defensive when they come under attack. You know, you just look again at the example of Moses. People were carping and criticizing and needling him for years and years on end. And, and Moses was described as the meekest man in all the earth. It did get to him eventually, but more often than not, he just took it on the chin and he carried on and he wasn't prickly about it. And you look, of course, at the greatest example of all, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that Peter says in 1 Peter 2? When Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. And so that is important. So leadership is about the protection of God's people from spiritual harm. So, so you need to pray for, for the elders in this place. You need to pray because there are so many pitfalls and scripture and history teaches us that often if there's a, a problem with, with elders, there then is a problem with the whole church. It just kind of filters down and affects everything. You know, one of the great examples of that from the Bible is the sin of David. You know, and Nathan the prophet confronts David with it and he says to him, David, because of what you've done, you've given tremendous occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. You know, and it, it trickled down from the top and the nation was affected. And as elders, you know, I guess our prayer should be, you know, don't let the people of God be ashamed or stumbled because of what we do. Um, I mean, aspiring to be an overseer, as is written in Second Timothy, um, is, is a noble task. You know, despite the responsibilities, uh, people should have a burden about caring for and about protecting the people of God. And as Ian was reminding us a couple of weeks ago, it is easy in a sense to say, oh, here's a message about, about leadership, you know, and therefore I'm kind of exempt from all of that. I mean, I, I felt it was important to just talk about, you know, the way that it's actually highlighted here, which is about leadership. But there, there is another side to it that all of us have responsibilities at one level or, or another, whether it's in the home whether it's what we do at work, you know, from the point of view of, of leadership in general, responsibilities in general. And so many of these principles are principles that we can also take on board. Thankfully, we know that despite many failures by, by leadership, that, that Christ will 
protect us. You know, there's that great phrase in the prayer of Christ in John 17 where he says, Father, protect them. Protect them by the power of your name. And we, and we know, as First Peter puts it, that we are kept, we're protected by the power of God through faith unto that salvation that will be revealed in the final day. So despite all our shortcomings as, as elders, there is the, the great reassurance of the power of God that works for our protection. So pray for us and uh, pray for the protection of this church because there's a lot of stuff swirling around that can easily affect and corrupt the people of God. Now shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word that uh, as we grasp and understand it can both encourage us and help us to be protected against a lot of error. We know your word is, is healthy, it's wholesome, it's health-giving. And Lord, we pray that as we, as we take that in, that that will be something that will nourish your people here tonight. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and thank you for the instruction of your word. We pray that your church, that Christ heads up, will be for the honor of Christ and for the blessing and for the benefit of the lost who live all around us here, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.